Hey, what's going on? Today, we are talking to a personal hero of mine, Desmond Mead. Desmond Mead is a formerly homeless and formerly incarcerated citizen who became a lawyer. Then he became the president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition and then led that organization to pass Amendment 4 in Florida, which returned voting rights to 1.4 million formerly incarcerated individuals. It was the largest voting rights restoration since the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was led by Martin Luther King. Top of so many people's minds right now is voting suppression, especially after what we saw in Minnesota a few months ago and then more recently what we saw in Georgia. So I wanted to bring Des on and share a bit about his story, which is one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard, and then help us contextualize how we got here when it comes to voter disenfranchisement and voter suppression and help us understand the specific hurdles he's facing as he tries to help over a million people vote in this upcoming election. This episode is so, so important to me. My personal theory of change is becoming less granular over time as I talk to more and more of these change makers and understand the roots of the issues we're facing. My theory of change is really starting to become this three-pronged theory. First, ensuring people are not in a state of desperation. Policies like basic income can help there. Secondly, ensuring people are in proximity to and in community with a wide variety of others so we can eradicate the type of otherism that allows for the bullshit myths that pit us against one another. And then lastly, ensure democracies are fully inclusive where every citizen has real self-determination and power. And uh, that's what we're covering in this episode. So I'm so excited you're here, you joined this conversation, that you get to meet Desmond Mead. I'm excited anytime I get to introduce anyone to Desmond. Let's get into it. Des, you pulled off something a lot of people thought was impossible when this ballot initiative in Florida passed, restoring voting rights to 1.4 million formerly incarcerated people. How did this journey begin and how did this whole thing play out? I got started in it because I was directly impacted. I was a drug addict. I've been incarcerated a few times. You know, I always tell the story about how, you know, in August of 2005 in South Florida, I found myself standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on a train to come so I can jump in front of it. Right, that day I was, I was homeless, I was addicted to drugs, I was recently released from prison. Uh, the only thing I owned were the clothes that was on my back. And you know, I knew that my parents didn't raise me to be in that position, but there I was. And, and I was a broken man and I wanted to end it. But that train didn't come that day. And um, I ended up crossing those tracks and I, I walked a couple blocks further and checked myself in the drug treatment. Uh, after completing drug treatment, I, I moved into a homeless shelter. And while there, I'll be honest with you, I just wanted to try to do something to not use drugs again. If any of you all are familiar with somebody who had alcohol or drug addiction, you know, sometimes we're caught in that vicious cycle where we would stop using and life would seem to improve. And then something would happen to where we use again, a relapse, and we're right back where we started or even worse. And I was just tired of that cycle. And... So I decided to enroll in college, and I enrolled in a paralegal program there. I did extremely well, ended up graduating at the top of my class, and I pursued a bachelor's degree in public safety management with a concentration in criminal justice. And I did that because I figured I had a lot of experience getting arrested and appearing before judges. 
that that experience would actually help me out in the classroom, and it actually did. And I ended up graduating with highest honors and eventually getting accepted into law school. And in May of 2014, I graduated from Florida International University College of Law with a Juris Doctorate degree while being on the dean's list. However, in spite of the different accomplishments that I was able to attain or the obstacles that I was able to overcome, because I lived in Florida, I still couldn't practice law, you know, because my civil rights were not restored and you need to have them restored in order to apply to the Florida bar. And then the granddaddy of them all was I could not vote. My wife, Sheena, she ran for office in 2016 and I couldn't even vote for it in spite of the fact that you know, in various parts of the country, you know, you had people who were in prison that was broken, like in Maine and Vermont. Even in Puerto Rico, prisoners was able to participate in the presidential primaries uh, in 2016. But because I lived in the state of Florida, I could not vote. And, you know, that was like someone just stuck a knife in me. I knew that something really just had to be done. Uh, and that was something that we've been working on, I think, two years prior to that, because we did launch that ballot initiative in 2014. And, you know, I think the rest is history. I don't have to talk too much about the ballot initiative, but I can tell you this. I believe it was the largest expansion of voting rights since women got the right to vote, right? And while that is tremendous, uh, what I hold even at a higher level is the way we did it and how we were able to bring people together across racial, across political lines, across socioeconomic lines, and we brought them together in such a way that we clearly demonstrated on election night in November 2018 that we don't have to tear each other down to accomplish things. We don't have to divide each other to accomplish things. We don't have to move people along the lines of fear or hate in order to accomplish great things in this country, that we can bring people together along the lines of humanity that we can have our driving force be that force of love, and we can show that love can win the day. And that's what it did in Florida. And I believe we see examples of it every single day. We're having a moment nationally where people are going across traditional party lines, traditional racial lines to support the BLM movement. As someone who got people across traditional lines to vote in favor of Amendment 4, what's your advice for us in this moment? And what's your highest hope for us in this moment? You know, one of the things I used to tell people about our campaign, and I used to try to get them to compare our campaign to certain things, it was how we reacted after natural disasters, right? How, when if a hurricane or tornado ripped through a, a community, how we actually seen people just come together along the lines of humanity and not caring about the color of your skin, not caring about your political preference, but actually just seeing the humanity in your neighbor and wanting to actually help someone out, right? One of the examples I always give is that, you know, you're driving down the street, right? And you see a bad car accident and you decide to stop and you get out your car and you see someone uh, laying on the side of the road, right? And you run up, right? Your first question is not going to be, did you vote for Donald Trump? It's not going to be, how much money do you make? What it's going to be is, are you okay or how can I help, right? And that's what, to me, as, a, as an advocate, I aspire to create more of those moments on a more regular basis in our country, 
right? To where the first thing we see is not a person's immigration status. It's not their sexual identity. It's not their political party. It's not the color of their skin. It's not about whether or not they've been touched by our uh, criminal justice system, but the fact that it's another human being that's in pain. And I think with this George Floyd incident, when people seen in that video, when they seen the life ease out of that individual, they were drawn to the humanity piece of it, right? And I think it was a human connection. When you see death, when you see uh, uh, suffering, it goes back to a natural human connection that we all have because we know that prejudices are taught, racism is taught, that when we were born, we didn't know any of that stuff, right? And so we went back to our natural state of togetherness, understanding that you're my brother, you're my sister, and collectively we can we can accomplish anything that we want to accomplish. And so if I were to give advice to anybody that's out there fighting, it is to do your damnedest to connect with each other along the lines of humanity right? And do your damnedest that even though somebody might not look like you, and they might not have the exact perspective that you have, understand that they never will, because we're all individuals. And if we can just connect with each other along the lines of humanity, it would make our work so much easier and allow us to bring in more people under the fold. And when we do that, and when we engage with people, there's nothing that can stop us. There's nothing that can't be accomplished. The proudest moments of our lives or even the proudest moments of this country is when people come together to respond to a disaster, or come together to respond to a crisis, or come together to respond to danger. Those are the moments that we're proud to stand up and stick our chests up and hold our shoulders up and say, damn, I'm proud to be an American. Or damn, I'm proud to be a human being. You now have restored the voting rights of 1.4 million people, but there are now other hurdles being placed in your path in terms of organizing these people and ensuring they can vote. There's a term we're hearing more and more often, voter suppression. You're actively dealing with that. What does that look like in practice? Okay, here we go again. Please excuse me for this. Understand I am a lawyer, so I might take you on, on, on a flight journey. But let's go back to not too long ago. It hasn't been long during the days of slavery. And we have to understand a couple of things. You remember how our parents taught us certain things that they learned from their grandparents, that they learned from their grandparents, right? And so if my great-grandmother taught my grandmother that the sky is green, it's really green, right? In spite of what you people may say, the sky is green. And my grandmother taught my mother that the sky is green. And my mother taught me from the time I could even think that the sky is green. And after I've lived for 50 years, there's somebody gonna come up to me and says, Desmond, everything your grandmother and your great-grandmother and your mama told you is wrong. The sky is really blue. Am I going to readily accept that? We're not, because this thing has been ingrained. And so we're talking about over 300 years of slavery where it's been ingrained in this country that African-Americans are inferior, that we're less than a human being, that it is okay to brutalize them. It is okay to destroy their family, to rape their women and their men. It is okay to beat their flesh until you see their bones. It is okay to burn them. It is okay to treat them worse than a dog because they are, that they're savages, that they're dangerous, that we have to keep them under heel. 
for over 300 years, three generations, this country had this thing ingrained in them. Then one day you're the slave owner that's had this stuff ingrained in you. And one day you wake up and somebody tells you that that person, right, or those people have just as much rights as you. Oh, hell no. I can't even comprehend that because that is the total conflict with what my mama, my grandmother, my great grandmama, with my friends, my even conflict with what my pastor have told me. But that wasn't the worst part. You already shocked that all of a sudden someone says that those people have just as much rights as you do. The scary part was when they started exercising those rights and started getting elected into Congress. They started voting in and getting elected as mayors and sheriffs and councilmen, right? That's when it got real scary. Because you think about this. If you, your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather has brutalized a group of people for generations after generations, and all of a sudden, these same individuals not only have as much right as you do, but they're placed in authority over you. It's scary. Because you ever heard, what was back in the days, it ain't fun when the rabbit got the gun? Right? That there is a sense of voting, of, of fear because of retribution, that you're thinking now all of these atrocities I have laid on these people. I remember raping my mayor's wife or that sheriff's wife. I remember destroying his family and sending his kids to other different plantations. I remember what I did to his mother and grandmother. And now he's the sheriff, he's the mayor. And so I had to get with my colleagues and I had to come up with an ingenious way to strip these newly released slaves of that power. Because I would not survive. Because it's just me and a few white other people on my farm. And there's a whole bunch of those black folks that's running around that now can vote and is voting. And so what I did was I created laws that I knew that they were more likely to commit and made that laws that would immediately strip you of your civil rights for life. And then I would arrest you, right? Convict you of it, throw you in jail. And from that jail, I would outsource you as prison labor right back into the same fields of which you was just liberated from. And for those who I can't get like that, I would use state sanctioned violence, which is the slave patrols, which today is called what? The police, right? to exact violence upon that group of people to beat them into submission and to scare them or even kill them, hang them by trees, burn them, and terrorize them to keep them away from the polls. And for those who that didn't work, I would create other challenges such as literacy tests and poll tax to keep them from voting. And then if that didn't work, I would also infuse some psychology in this and have them believing that their vote didn't matter or didn't count. That's what happened immediately after the slaves were free. And if you stop and think about it, it is identical to what is going on right now. So you're saying what looks like modern political scheming actually has roots in this pragmatic fear of retribution right after slavery ended. And we're dealing with the legacy of that today. There you go. There you go. And we're seeing it play out 
with the different methods of voter suppression. You see it play out with the private prison industry. We know, and when you look at the Constitution, we know that slavery is really still alive and thriving, right? It is not completely abolished, right? We also see that with Ferguson. When Ferguson happened, our eyes were open to the fact that police uh, were stationed at polling locations to check people's warrants, right? And we see what's happening with George Floyd, that we, especially as black men, we experience this every single day. But the thing is, is once they can criminalize us or try to put the criminal tag on us, then the public would not have outrage. But this thing has been going on from the days of slavery all the way up to now. And it is deeply ingrained in our system. And we have to come up with creative ways to actually eradicate it or destroy it. And I champion the fact that we can do that with love. What are the specific tactics of voter suppression you're facing today? Where do we start? I mean, once again, clothing polling locations, understanding that young folks have an impact on elections or could have an impact on elections, uh, removing polling locations from college campuses, voter ID law, where your gun license can get you in the vote, but your college ID couldn't get you in the vote, right? And of course, uh, felon disenfranchisement, not educated because This is the thing a lot of people seem to overlook easily. Each state, whoever runs their uh, elections in the state, right? In Florida, it is the Division of Elections, right? The Secretary of State runs the Division of Elections. They're actually charged to educate every citizen of the state about their eligibility. Do you know how many returning citizens there are across the country that still does not have a clue that they can actually register to vote? In the state of Georgia, once you've completed your time, you automatically are eligible to vote. All you have to do is go and register to vote, right? You have different states that are withholding that type of information and not doing what they're supposed to do, and that's being proactive. Because ideally, our supervisor of elections, our secretary of state, are supposed to be doing everything possible to encourage all of its citizens to participate. They ought to be creating a more inclusive democracy Uh, But there are still states, Kentucky, Iowa, that still impose a lifetime ban, all right? And so that means that, you know, like how it was here in Florida, if you were driving with a suspended license and and you got convicted of that, you could quite possibly have gotten a felony conviction. You would lose the right to vote for life. Or if you're, you know, when you go to those memorials, uh, maybe a friend died or something like that, and you go and you release the balloons. Uh, In Florida, if you do that, that's a third degree felony. So could you imagine never, ever, 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 ever being able to vote again, right? Because you released helium balloons in the air, right? That happened to a guy who, instead of giving his wife a dozen roses on Valentine's Day, released 12 heart-shaped balloons in the air in her honor. Police saw him, took him to jail. You know, if you disturb turtle nesting eggs on the beach in Florida, that's a third degree felony. If you catch a lobster, tail too short, third degree felony. If you try to go to the pier to watch the sunset and that pier is closed and you walk on that pier, you're trespassing on the pier, in Florida, third degree felony. And so we had so many individuals who were, matter of fact, over 1.68 million individuals were disfranchised because of Florida's policies. And that goes on in so many different states. But we were able, once again, to actually destroy that and eliminate that lifetime ban by creating an alternative pathway for people to be able to vote 
uh, and we did so. And we know that when you hear 1.4 million, let me just check that a little bit. That number grows every single day, right? And, and that, that is a, uh, what you call it, a static number. And this is the beauty of it. Because Amendment 4 is the gift that's going to keep on giving perpetually, right? Because it's ingrained in the Constitution now. That So it's going to be millions and more, millions of people that's going to be able to vote after they've done their time. And that's a beautiful thing. What are the positive ramifications of a society that empowers formerly incarcerated people to vote? Well, I mean, yeah, so let me say something. And this is so important. You know, sometimes a person can have a tumor in their body and not know it, right? And, and while that tumor is in one place, if it's ignored, it grows into other parts of the body and make, now it's even so much harder to take it out, right? Felony disenfranchisement was that tumor, right? But then what added on to that is the fact that we bought into a lot of rhetoric, right? One of my friends, Dr. Vincent Antoni, wrote a book about African-Americans and an atomic bomb, where he studied the uh, reaction of African-Americans to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And one of the things that really struck me, because Black folks were strong advocates against what happened in Japan, and, and folks couldn't really understand it, but Black folks were like, did you all just realize what happened? Uh, United States just obliterated a city of people, a race of people, and it was like it was okay, and we could be next. And so what Dr. Antonio was showing was what happened prior to the bombing. And prior to the bombing, the United States engaged in a marketing campaign that created this image of Japanese people as vicious, dangerous people that was a, a threat not only to the country, but to the very lives of every American citizen. But the key thing that it did was dehumanize them, right? So it wasn't even these people are against us. No, it was these devils or these savages or these less than human people are threatening our very livelihood, all right? And when they did that, they desensitized us, right? And so that when they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima or Nagasaki, that there wasn't a more outrage with us, right? Because we figured that, yeah, they saved us from those very bad people. Well, for years, people like me have been villainized and made to be these animals and monsters, and society as a whole have been desensitized to us. So even when we're crying out in pain, no one wants to listen. Do you think it was only now DA started having power or sheriff started having power? Do you think it's only now that these problems have existed in our police departments? They have existed from the very beginning, but no one wanted to listen to us because we were labeled criminals. We were labeled dangerous, right? And that is something that we all have bought into at some point. We don't give precedence to someone who is labeled as a felon or a criminal. That's why you see anytime there's a killing of a black person, the first thing opposition want to do is bring up his history. Oh, he stole a cigar 10 years ago. Oh, he was a criminal, so we don't have to do it. And so it is very important that we understand that we cannot allow our governments, we cannot allow society to blanketly just dehumanize, no matter what they've done, they still are a human being. And if we look at people like that, we're able to catch those tumors early and we're able to heal our collective body and move on. And so now that we're coming along, now that we're getting these new form rights, 
And now that returning citizens are, are getting not, not more vocal because they've been vocal forever in the day. No one's just been listening. But we've been able to maybe do something amazing like graduate law school after being homeless and addicted to drugs that captures people's attention. Or maybe it's doing something like writing a book or being in a movie or actually like a Tyler Perry making movies, right? To start understanding that people who we normally don't pay attention to, people who are invisible to us, have something to say. And maybe if we listen, we can learn a lot and we can avoid a lot of the pain that we're going through right now. And so as, as a person who is a returning citizen that now have political clout, I get not only get you to listen to me, I can decide who the hell is in power to implement the policies that I need done, right? And today we cover the gap. In Florida, over 1.4 million people have the right to vote. And the thing about it, that's overkill to me. And the reason why I say it's overkill, because Florida, the governor's race was decided by 30,000 votes. A congressional race was decided by 16,000 votes. And historically, presidential elections, the 100,000 votes. Bush Gore was 500 votes, right? 520 something votes. We got 1.4 million. And so give me a couple hundred thousand, and guess what? We cover the gap. And we can decide who the next president is. And if you live in another state, please forgive my boldness on this, but I do believe that Florida go, so does the rest of the country. Because I have yet in my lifetime seen anyone get in the White House without winning Florida, right? And so the reality is the fate of the world hangs in the balance with what we as American voters do this year. And if that's the case, I believe that Florida is at the center of it. Even more so, I believe that Florida Rights Restoration Coalition lies at the epicenter because there's no other organization in this entire world right now that is authentically prepared and positioned to engage those 1.4 million returning citizens more than FRRC. Thank you for joining me on What We Don't Know. If you liked what you heard, we post the full interviews on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. If you become a patron, you'll have access to those full interviews plus other exclusive content. 50% of the revenue that this podcast generates goes towards the initiatives and organizations of our guests. So you'll not only be supporting this podcast, but you'll also be supporting some amazing, amazing work. If you'd like to follow us on social, we're at WWDKPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On YouTube, you can find our channel if you search What We Don't Know Podcast. If you go to our website, www.dkpod.com, you can sign up for our newsletter where we share all the latest content. All right. Hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.